Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 145. I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. We got some Wizards Lizard stuff to discuss today. I'm pretty excited about it because I think that uh, I feel a level up in the game development arena, you know? <laughs> do you? I do. I mean, the the first game is is a pretty recent memory, you know? Like, the pains and the struggles uh, are still real, and I, we have a much better approach this time. You know, I feel really good about it. That's good. Yeah. Hopefully, that's a mutual feeling. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like I don't I'm know so what good, you're talking you're about. Like running around on fire. <laughs> yes. Well, it feels uh, good as of late. Yeah. But then, you know, the danger with game dev is that a lot of things feel good at some point, you know? Yeah. Like we never start off on uh, things that end in failure thinking like, oh, this is a terrible approach. Why are we even doing this? I feel like we have. We well, maybe. Have. <laughs> but, you know, you don't want to, right? That's not ideal. Right. Especially like as an indie studio where you, you really should be working on a game that you're really jazzed about, right? Yes. Well, you almost have to be, right? Like, yeah, like by definition. Unless you're doing, you know, work for other people or whatnot. Right. But I mean, if you like self-funding or that kind of thing. Yeah. It's the only yeah, way sure. that you're ever going to get anything done. Right. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk a little bit about productivity and kind of like triaging your productivity i don't know i have a, i have some weird thoughts that i want to get across and uh i want to discuss like our approach to content and how we're developing awl2 because uh, i like it like i'm not gonna say it's the best thing ever but it's it's a definite improvement um you've got some more design patterns to talk about and i've got another art tip hooray all this and more on lost cast 145 <laughs> yeah so uh okay here was the thought like i kind of bounced it off you yesterday um so i noticed that like what I tend to do when I'm trying to be productive is uh, I will hit like a, a barrier sometimes. And I think everyone's, you know, everyone who's done like worked on big projects has got this where you hit this wall and there's all kinds of best practices or way to think about it. You know, like you basically just want to bust through the wall however you can. And I've found that like <clears throat> when I do that, a lot of times I don't, I'm not doing my best work. You know, like my brain, there's a reason it's not coming out of me. You know, my brain wants to go and retreat and do something else. And it's probably like a subconscious thing. You know, your mind wants to work on it. You know, in the back of your mind, you want to take a shower and have a great idea. You want to go to bed and, and think about it and dream about it and wake up and then you have an epiphany or whatnot, you know. But that sucks for productivity because it feels like sometimes you end up waiting around, you know, for that spark to ignite and you can get back to your job. So what I've, I think I've noticed is that, like, I think I'm most productive when I have a development, like, like coding or programming task in front of me, as well as an art one. You know, like, very separate from each other sometimes because... I noticed that like um, a lot of times I'll procrastinate with the arts. I'll have like, you know, all these five sprites I got to draw and I don't want to because they're going to be hard and I'm going to mess up a lot and it's gonna, probably going to take all day even though it feels like it shouldn't and blah, blah, blah. Like I basically want to retreat, you know, like a temporary retreat. And what's great is like, you know, I might go walk the dog or I might just go play some video games, watch a movie, like just kind of procrastinating. But when I have another job I need to do that's interesting, I will often retreat to that, you know, so I'll go to the code. And I'll be like, sweet, I can, you know, I'll code up this new entity or I'll fix this bug or whatever. And so the two kind of temper each other, you know, because like I've had mostly code tasks on me recently because we're hitting the content pretty hard. So I've been like, I got to make this new trap. I got to make this new monster. There's these two new weapons I want to add that I'm really excited to prototype, you know, and my brain is just not there yet. You know, I've spent a couple of days just not working (laughs) on those things, which me as a like, you know, the product manager hat on my head, I'm like, those need to get done. 
you know but like what's nice is i can retreat to the art and i can be like oh hey there's a couple of sprites that need to get done so i can just bang those out and in the back of my mind i'm thinking about the next task you know so what you're saying is that your solution to work burnout is to have backup work that you can do just in case <laughs> yes <laughs> my solution to work burnout is work <laughs> not not surprisingly <laughs> i know what you're saying though it actually does feel good i think it's it's one of those things that's a fine line, right? Because, you know, like you're saying, the project manager part of you is like, these things need to get done, but you don't feel like doing them. Yeah. And so you're like, I can still be productive. I'm going to, you know, work on this thing that doesn't necessarily, uh, isn't as, as important, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it's it's risky sometimes because I think that when I don't have that, like I don't have, I can't retreat to art because I don't have any art tasks or something like that. What I might end up doing is I'll find something I just kind of want to do on the current game. You know, something selfish where I'm like, I just like, you know, I like bees. I want to add five <laughs> new bees weapons. But it's like, you know, it might be just the wrong thing for the project. It's the right thing for me. Like, I really want to do it, you know. <clears throat> and I think that I try to find those, like, more fun tasks. And that's just another form of procrastination, but almost like an aggressively bad one. You know, yeah. where I'm like hurt. Like, I feel like I did a lot of that in the first game. Where I'm like, oh, I don't know, there's a steel ball. That's like a stupid weapon in the first game. And I spent like time iterating on that and coming up with this dumb thing, just probably because I was retreating away from, you know, the task at hand that needed to be done that I didn't want to do. That's funny because I was playing AWL one the other day to <laughs> test an update for Steam or something. Nice. And uh, as I was testing it, you know, I the first thing I got was the steel ball out of a chest or something. And I was like, this sucks. Uh, who added this? <laughs> This is garbage. <laughs> it's like, it's just this little round gray graphic. It's just so boring. Oh, it's so dull. Yeah. It, it bounces and it has this really convoluted feature where for every piece of steel gear you have, like your, your helmet, your body, your hands, your feet, whatever, it gets like a little more damage or something. But it's like you have almost no control over which type of gear you're going to get. You know, and like it's really hidden. Like mo people are not going to pick it up and be like, "Oh, steel ball! I bet that gets more powerful when you have steel gear on." No, no one's going to think that. You know, it's like it's a weird <laughs> thing that people are mostly just going to be like kind of confused and uh, weirded out by. Like, I don't know. I'd I'd really just prefer the trident. You know, <laughs> I don't want that creepy steel ball. <laughs> I, don't want these. I don't want these. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it's good times. I know what you mean though. Um, I do the same thing. My retreats. Uh, is usually game engine programming. It is, yeah. Yeah, you've got like, uh, you, you were working on one uh, over the weekend or something, right? I've got multiple like <laughs> game engine side projects. <laughs> How many game engines do you have right now? I don't even know, man. Well, I'm actively working on? Well, <laughs> that uh, recent enough to where you're not like, you know, yeah, I made that when I was 12 or whatnot. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just two. <laughs> I think it's three. What? I, I think you have gin, you have ocelot, and you have this other thing. Oh, that's true. Okay. <laughs> I love that it's more than you thought. <laughs> oh, and it, like every single game engine could be this whole can of worms, right? But you know, you've done a pretty good job of like, like ocelot by definition is supposed to be this tiny bite-sized thing, right? Yeah. I was kind of disappointed because I didn't get to finish it up for the JS13K, but I think that oh, yeah. it still has value. You know, I was experimenting with like a minimalist approach to, you know, an HTML5 game engine. Yeah. So that was pretty it's, fun. <laughs> it's funny. Like sometimes, um, you know, we'll show each other this stuff. Like you, you show me this demo. And I know that because just the way you present it and, uh, you know, we're very similar in some ways. I know in the back of your mind, you're like, 
Matt might be like, what are you doing? I know. <laughs> Why are you wasting your time on this crap, you know? Sometimes I just, you know, just don't. Like, what are you up to? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. I did nothing. It's I, like, that's almost better. Yeah. When you're talking about like, like, a, like a coworker or something, it's like, I wasn't doing a thing in the world. I swear I wasn't <laughs> working, but on the wrong stuff. Yeah. But no, we, we talked about it and it's kind of more like um, the perspective drills. You know, or like, you know, the, the the drawing studies we talk about, right? Where it's like you practice every day or whatnot. Like that's your, that's, that's what that is. Yeah. You know, it has its purpose. It has its place. It is useful. Its purpose is mostly to allow me to get these weird ideas out of my head and into some kind of like actual form where I can see if they're terrible. I think it's actually good too, um, because what it does is it prevents me from like starting on a huge refactor of like gin or, or AWL code base or something. Yeah. Cause often it stems from these times where I'm like in the code doing one task and I'm just like disgusted with my old code. You know, <laughs> I just want to like, you know, go back in time and slap <laughs> myself. I know that you have done that actually where you've gone into gin or maybe even AWL one's source code and you've started to bulldoze. Right. And you do that thing where you're like, you know, you're knee deep in a refactor before you realize just how big of a refactor it is. And then you're like, Oh, get reset <laughs> like, head hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this is clearly not going to happen. Like that happens pretty regularly. Right. Oh, it does. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I was just talking to you yesterday about a, like a multi-step refactor. I wanted to yeah. refactor like the, uh, the AI system that we have in a wizard's lizard. And, but I, when I got down to it, I realized that I also needed to refactor part of like the entity component system at right. large. Yeah. And then that was, you know, not happy about that situation. That was the end of that. Yeah. Like too many, uh, prerequisites, right? Although I may come back to it, you know, sometimes what I do is I start a refactor and then I get a little ways into it and I'm like, this is just not happening. There's too much going on here. I don't understand it enough. And then I revert it and then I let it percolate. Yeah. And then I, maybe I'll come back to it in a couple of weeks and I have a better, perspective on how it should go so that might be another way to look at your engine side projects is like you know you've got a niche to scratch with regards to something like behavior trees or whatnot right or but when you try to implement that in the wizard lizard code base it's like a it's like wading around in mud you know you've got to dig around all this content you've got to dodge all these scripts that don't really necessarily have anything to do with what you're trying to do at that moment but it's very important to the overall game it's basically just a bigger, hairier problem when you're trying to do some kind of scripting stuff in, you know, the live game engine, right? Right. But when you do it on the side and it's like, you know, there are no uh, dependencies like that, you can just kind of isolate the problem and just work on, like, just answer the questions you want answered, you know? Right. I don't have to worry about, you know, merging your changes in and, like, being on a branch and getting too far behind. Yeah, I can and like you, you screw it up a... completely, who cares, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you're just not going to, you know, you commit it. I'm like, ah, Jeff, it's broken. I can't work. Like that doesn't exist in that isolated engine. Right. So far. Yeah. <laughs> so far. <laughs> it's good. It's like an experiment, you know, like la- like a laboratory experiment. It's yeah. useful. You learn stuff. Well, plus, uh, you know, I got exposed to a lot of uh, different stuff during the time I spent with Unity. And so, yeah. interestingly, that's you know, evolved my perspective about the way that a game engine should be architected. Yeah. You know, because any time that you experience another system, uh, you take away little bits you know, of stuff from that. And so yeah, I definitely, definitely took away a lot of stuff for Unity in terms of things that I would like to, you know, if I were to design Jin or any HTML5 game engine from the ground up now, there's certain things I would do differently. 
What I have found interesting is seeing the things that you like better about Jin and the things that you'd prefer about Unity. And I feel like it's been about even Steven recently. You know, you, you were kind of saying that, like, you know, just adding an entity is way easier in Unity because you go, bloop, there it is, it's done. Whereas in Jin, you have to, you add the model data, then you have to give it an avatar and probably also a pawn. We've talked before about, like, those are just the way that the uh, the view handles what to do with the entity data Right. And then there's also like uh, the actual drawing of the sprite itself, which sometimes that needs animation and whatnot. It ends up being just a lot of boilerplate across something like five files, which is a bit of a pain. It is. And it's really not that bad. It's just tedious and boring. You know, (laughs) which is it's tedious and boring is not that bad. No, I mean, it doesn't take that long. All in all, is I guess what I'm saying. You know, like you have to touch five files, but you're changing like three or four lines in each or something. Right. Yeah, it's not the worst thing ever. No. But interesting but, that it's easier in Unity. Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of its game, right? Very, yeah. like, WYSIWYG almost. Yeah. Um, but I think that ours gets still be better. I was playing around with uh, our game engine where basically you can define an entity in JSON and then everything just works, basically. You don't need to touch any other files. That does sound nice. Um, which I kind of like because isolation, I think, is better. You know, having this one file be the source of truth. And like Jin has this kind of big separation between the entity and the view. A huge separation, yeah. The, the engine that you've been playing with has kind of married those two together in a cool way. That's the interesting thing about Jin is that when we first wrote Jin, the rendering engine is basically uh, like a hierarchical scene graph that's composed of uh, inherited, basically rendering nodes. Nice. You can almost think of it as like a div yeah <laughs> it's like imagine there's a div class and the div class can have sub divs and then you know each div can have its own uh position and width and height and you can draw whatever you want inside of it and stuff like that but uh it's not that portion is not entity component at all yeah and my newer thinking is that the rendering really should just be a component yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah I like that. Anyways, someday. Yeah, someday. So uh, let's talk about our approach to content in AWL 2 because, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, using the first game's engine, we quick, much more quickly got to that point where we're like, we're banging on the content. You know, like a lot of the features are still kind of up in the air and like we haven't, uh, you know, necessarily nailed down all the systems and whatnot. But it's still pretty important for a game like this to have dense content. You know, and so we're, we've been working hard on like, let's add some weapons and let's add some more weapons. And then, but here's the important part is like, we cut ruthlessly, right? So we kind of have like this order we go in where it's like, we talk about what kind of content would be cool. Like what, it's multi-pronged, you know, it's like what we're excited about, what's lacking in the game. You know, um, we've been doing this mana-based uh, currency type thing where you have like red, green, and blue mana. So it's easy to look at it and be like, okay, we have five blue weapons and, you know, only two green weapons. So green could use more weapons right so we look at all these variables and then we start to talk about like what kind of content that would look like then we put it in the game and we don't necessarily try to polish it too much like we might actually give it graphics just to help us you know i know what i'm picking up i know what i'm throwing you know it takes it out of that stage where it's like clearly just you know prototype rectangles and stuff right we take it like just one step beyond that we don't spend a lot of time in polish um, and then we just like we're very honest about it you know we we play with it we see if we like it we either tweak it 
or cut it, you know, and like we compare it to, this is like a big thing I think, is that we compare it to the content in the other game and we'll be like, <clears throat> what's your favorite weapon right now? How does it compare to your favorite weapon? Would you ever prefer this new weapon to your favorite weapon? You know, and if, if the answer is like, no, never, I would like, it doesn't compete at all with my favorite weapon, then it's like, well, we're probably going to cut it in that case. I think it's really interesting in, in this kind of game to let stuff bake um, so you can actually catch yourself in those behavior patterns. Yeah. Um, Cause it's not, sometimes it's not as, you know, overt as like, oh, this weapon is very bad. <laughs> but if time and time again, you catch yourself thinking like, oh, you like come across a shop and you're like, or you come across a chest and you open up chest and there's like, you know, weapon B and you're like, uh, weapon B. No, I'm going to stick with weapon A. Yeah. If that happens every single time, <laughs> right. Then, uh, you know, it's not a good sign. And there's so much stuff like that in the first game that we want to just avoid with the sequel entirely. Yeah. Definitely. Like, especially things that, you know, it should be rewarding to the player. We don't want that to, you know, it almost feels like punishment. If it, like you're given an item that you already have or whatnot, like you have no need for it. You, It's like worse than if there was no reward there at all, right? I think actually we have a pretty interesting system right now where we have this mana, the colored mana like you're talking about. And so certain weapons will, you know, use up certain colors of mana. And so it almost forces the player to think more deeply about what kind of weapons they want, you know? Yeah. It's like you might really like this blue weapon, but you're getting low on blue mana, and so your only option is to take this red weapon that you may not prefer, but you have a lot of mana for it. And so right. I like that choice. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, this was something on the design side that I thought was kind of interesting, is we were talking about um, slot-based weapons. So, like, uh, I mean, we, we already had that in the code, so it was, like, an attractive thing to work on, but it was basically along the lines of, like, uh, we decided to theme our weapons as wands this time around. There's no, like, you know, sword and axe and spear and crossbow and steel ball, and, you know, all this stuff. It's, you get a wand, right? And we talked about, like, <clears throat> it's more interesting if you can kind of pick and choose and take stuff with you just a little bit. You know, like, not you pick up every stinking item you come across and you have this big inventory screen and, like, we don't want to take people out of the action. But it's, we did want to give them some choice, you know, because, like, as it was, if you got your favorite weapon, which for me is the killer bees, which are homing bees, which is super awesome, if I saw almost anything else, I'd be like, pass. Like, the only way I would, <laughs> right? Like, the only way I would drop it and pick up something else would be if I'm out of mana. That was pretty much it. Or just, you know, very low mana or whatnot. And uh, the first thing that popped in my head was, like, let's do a slot for each color. Makes total sense. You get a red slot, green slot, and a blue slot, right? But, like, that almost doesn't solve the problem entirely. It's not a bad idea in and of itself. It makes sense, like, one slot per color, sure. But we did, went with uh, two, kind of like an on-hand and an off-hand. You know, like, you've got your primary weapon, and you can kind of swap, right? It's so like something, you know, maybe in your left hand or, like, on your side or whatever. Uh, but that works a lot better because... As it was, if you find your favorite green weapon, you pick it up. You find your favorite blue weapon, you pick it up. Favorite red weapon, there you go. And you're just like, you're set, right? But with two slots, like just one less than the total number of uh, mana resources, you have a hard decision to make because you might be like, I got my favorite green weapon, I got my favorite blue weapon and my favorite red weapon, but I can only take two of them with me. That's a hard decision sometimes. You have right. to look at your mana resources. You have to consider where you are in the world, what kind of monsters there are to fight against, you know? Mm-hmm like more player agency a a deeper decision to make and hopefully that leads to more fun and hopefully uh it'll also be harmonious with some of the other stuff right like we have this other slot called book which yep. is kind of like your long or basically your big attack it's the soul ability from the first game 
right that use soul orbs so now you have your book which is like your your kind of occasional um yeah occasional magic ability but that also uh, influences your decisions because you you essentially do have three slots so you could if you wanted to have a blue weapon a green weapon and a red book that's true and then you have one thing that's using each mana pool yeah but there's that's also kind of interesting. items in the game that uh, allow you to harmonize things together. Like we have uh, one thing I just added that I, I really like is the book that turns all the corpses in the rooms into green mana. Yes, I love it. So you're <laughs> like, you know, that's an item where you could actually conceivably have two green items, two green weapons. You're you're like incentivized to have green, like multiple green stuff. Right. At least a green wand with your green book, at the very least. But like maybe even like you were saying, would you have homing bees and fissure, which yeah. are like two of the coolest green weapons? You had that and the mana green mana book, and you were just like rocking it because you had plenty of mana and you could just rip stuff apart. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. But I mean, the downside there is that you give up, you know, what you take in in mana regen. You know, it keeps you firing your wands, but you have basically no other utility. Right. Um. So, like, for example, you have a book that teleports you a certain distance. Ooh, and it does telefragging. Does telefragging. There's the shield. <laughs> there's the time uh, warp from the first game that's back. So, I mean... Slows time, like, bullet time. It's really fun. Especially in a bullet hell. You know, like, it's not a bullet hell game necessarily, but it definitely has bullet hell moments, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and the so, time warp makes you feel like you're in the Matrix. And you give up all that potential awesomeness just to have more mana, but, you know, that has its own upsides. Yeah, we were talking about the, um, what do we call that, the uh, co- uh, cognitive overhead? Yes. That we called that? <laughs> sure. But it's basically like a lot of people are, uh, are playing the game and, you know, like when you're playing the first game, I know I do this, I forget about my totem, I might forget about my soul ability, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And players kind of have that option still because, you know, the, you know, something like a shield or like there's a heal spell now, like that stuff could be very important, but you might just forget about it, you know? But if you're playing the game and you run out of mana... You're almost certainly going to remember your book that gives you mana if that's what you've got. Mm-hmm. So it's a, like an interesting way to play. It kind of like it fits with, uh, it, it lets people play different ways if they want to change their style. Yeah, I think that a lot of it is about kind of condensing uh, because in AWL1, we had the soul ability and the totem. And like, yeah, having two kind of sort of long cooldown ish abilities like they really should have, we, we talked about they should have been the same thing yeah they should have and that's really what the books are uh, in adbl too i think that that's a perfect example of how we were kind of just desperate for content you know we, we always felt like the game was lacking we wanted to that's one of the reasons we were so afraid of cutting stuff you know like steel ball yeah it's lousy but it's like a checkbox in a list you know it's like one more item we have 36 items like great you know but it's like okay 20 would have been a lot better you know like <laughs> just cut the crap you know we have 36 items and 35 of them suck <laughs> yes <laughs> so you were talking about some room placement room foo <laughs> room foo like yes. kung fu <laughs> practicing my room foo yeah yeah that's a really interesting aspect of procedural generation it's interesting because there's basically like these uh, layered approach to generating the dungeons. Yeah. And every step of the way requires some amount of procedural generation and heuristics and stuff to get it to, to seem great. 
and just to seem great just to seem great yeah. <laughs> not to be great <laughs> just a thin veneer of great <laughs> the illusion of being great <laughs> yes um so like obviously the first step is to generate the dungeon layout you know for that you need to know how many rooms you want how they should be connected where's the start where's the end yeah how do you create branches off which you know how many connections are there like how accessible is the map is it more kind of windy with wings is it more condensed with a lot of interlocking doors and that's really interesting you know and and heuristics comes into play there because you can wait certain rooms to say like you know i don't want to put a new corridor off of the start room or i don't want to put another corridor off of the the boss room or something like that Um, one thing i did recently that i thought was pretty cool was that uh, i made the decision that the start room should always be a dead end yeah i like that a lot yeah, and it seems kind of weird at first. You're like, well, why does that matter necessarily? And in and of itself, it probably doesn't. But uh, what I found was happening through repeated playthroughs is that like, you start the start room and there's like three doors. And you're like, all right, I go through the first one. And you go somewhere and then maybe you hit a dead end and you have to come back to the start room. And the start room ends up being this kind of hub that you travel through a couple different times at least. And it doesn't feel great because it's just this boring, nothing happening room. There's not even corpses <laughs> there that show that you know you had a great battle right and uh, or anything it's just this this boring room and so i decided that you should never have to go back there again Hmm. because (laughs) there's no reason to it is really interesting um it's the kind of thing you only really learn by playing your game a lot you know and a lot of us don't do that enough or if we do you know if we're being honest with ourselves we're playing it in a weird way we're playing it in debug mode we're playing like this little slice of the game, you know, like, yeah, I start the game and I kill five monsters in, in four rooms and I'm done. You know, like that's not actually playing the game. Like like what you're talking about is you were really playing the game like a, like an actual gamer and you were like, you know what? I'm sick of this room. I never want to see this room ever again. I want <laughs> right. to graduate from this room. I want to move on from it. <laughs> if I and, never uh, see the start room again, it'll be too soon. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And you, you did. You kind of like you put it off you know, the beaten path. It's like you never really have to go back there. People can if they want, but there's no reason to. That's great. We don't force you to, which is... So anyways, that's like the dungeon layout. <clears throat> um, and then the next thing I refactored was the room choosing algorithm. And that... So that tells you like what kind of room this is, whether it's a shop or just a standard battle or some kind of big battle. Not yet even. This is like uh, first just choosing the ones that are going to be... I mean, it's sort of... It's kind of, it's you a categorize more modular first? Pl- approach. Well, first I decide which rooms are going to be in the dungeon at all. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. I'm not even thinking about where they're going to be. Right. So first step is to generate the dungeon. And then at that point you have an amount of rooms that need filling, right? You have a start right. room and an end room. And then some amount of blank rooms in between. And at that point, then I choose, okay, I've got 10 rooms to fill. Which rooms should go in this dungeon? Which kinds of rooms? You know, are we going to need like one shop, two shops? Um, should there be these particular special rooms? Should there be these reward rooms? Um, and that's an interesting algorithm in and of itself, right? Because you want certain things like in AWL1, for example, like this room shows up anywhere in the cemetery, but it won't ever show up again. Yeah. So you need to structure all that stuff so that you can have you know, some rooms that maybe repeat, like you could have a particular room layout with just random monsters in it appear multiple times throughout a dungeon, perhaps. Um, but you'd almost never want to have like, for example, we have this room called the Kitchen Banquet. 
yeah. uh, which is a very big room with a lot of monsters, and it's got like this very particular layout of like tables and stuff. I kind of think of it as like a landmark room. Um, yeah. And it's actually one of the ways that my head's been trending with this kind of stuff is that there should be more landmarks. Like, because it's randomly generated and because, you know, a lot of the rooms can kind of feel samey. Like, it's nice to break it up with, like, something that's very specific, but you also don't want to, like... I would only ever want to see that room once per game. Right. Even if there are multiple kitchen levels. Like, I don't want to see a kitchen banquet in every single kitchen level. Yeah. It's something more like, okay, in this particular game session, the banquet's going to spawn on kitchen level two. And that's it. Right. And then, uh, then the next step is to kind of combine those two things together. So you have this list of rooms that should be in the dungeon, and then you have this layout, which includes where all the rooms are. And then that's the point where you're taking individual rooms and sticking them into the map and saying, you know, put this one here, this one there, this one there. And that was an interesting algorithm because every time you place a room, the algorithm then has to reevaluate everything. Right. Right, because when you start, you've basically got this blank canvas, and you're like, I could put this room anywhere. And where's the best place to put it? Well, who knows? That could vary by the room. Um, a lot of times it's like you don't want to put it near the start room and you don't want to put it right next to the exit. Yeah. Um, a lot of times you want to put it off in a dead end somewhere. Sometimes you want it on the critical path. So there's a lot of interesting work that goes into just figuring out once you've chosen your rooms and once you've generated your dungeon, where in those dunge- in the dungeon do those rooms appear? And how do they really relate to each other? Yeah. Um, there was a, something interesting came up a little while ago where uh, we were talking about um, skinning the doors a little more. We were paying a lot more attention to the doors and, and this time around. And it was something like, should we make a shop door look like a shop when it's leading to a shop and leaving a shop both or like into and out of a boss? And there was something where you're like, you know, we don't even necessarily have that data. Like when a room is placed, it might not even know what's around it. Well, that's one of the reasons the reasons I did re- this, this refactor, actually. Nice. Or one of the primary reasons, because, yeah, I realized that when we first, you know, when we wrote AWL, the first version, the way that the, the room generator worked is that it generated the dungeon, and then it said, okay, for each room in the dungeon, pick a room and fill it there. And so what it would do is it would say, room one, let's see, okay, we need a shop in this level, so here's a shop. Room two, uh, we need a, something in this, you know, so here's a thing. And uh, it did a little bit of heuristics in terms of where to place those things, but, you know, the room that you placed before a shop wouldn't necessarily know that a shop was coming next. Right. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons I had to do that refactor, so that I could pull it out into that step that I described, where it's generate, choose rooms, and then figure out where the rooms are going to go in the dungeon. And then at that point, then you can start actually populating the room. So once you have those, those three steps done layout, room choice, room placement, then you can start actually populating the rooms with things. Doors, nice. entities, whatever they happen to be. That's a lot of stuff. That's a hairy problem. It is a hairy problem. And one of the things that I still need to go back and, and upgrade is the way the entities actually get placed in the room. Because right now it's a little more haphazard than I would like. And I want to bring heuristics back into that mix too, where you know I have this map of the room basically a tile map and i can say you know okay i'm going to put a trap in this corner and now i'm going to run some heuristics and i want to put the next trap as far away from that first trap as possible perhaps i mean it doesn't necessarily have to be that exact algorithm but i mean 
that's the idea, right? Is that you would have these rules where, you know, oh, traps want to be like five spaces away from each other. Um, I personally don't like it when I come into a room and I see like two turret traps are next to each other. Yeah. Uh, or two ice traps. Like it kind of just feels like random design, you know? It's like, it doesn't <laughs> feel natural. If it looks like procedural generation, that's that's a bad sign. Right. Right. Like we at least want, if we, <laughs> this is bad, but like we want it to at least look like it was built by an incompetent game designer. <laughs> At the very least. At the very least. <laughs> Instead of like, okay, this was clearly just randomly placed. There was that uh, interesting bug from the first game that we didn't actually find ourselves. I don't think it was until it hit live on Steam that somebody found it in production. But it was basically like, we have this algorithm where um, traps are just placed like completely randomly. It's literally just, give me a random open spot on the map, right? And when you have a scenario where there's a pressure plate that you have to touch, and there's also four static spikes is what we call them where they just sit there and they don't move and you can't touch them or you get hurt right eventually given enough people playing it you will have a pressure plate with four spikes all around it right or i'm not gonna do the math right now right i don't think but you like, can it, do the math <laughs> yeah well i mean on any given room maybe <laughs> yeah. but you could tell like the odds are not great that that's ever going to happen but it will eventually it's greater than zero right it is and it goes up when you think about other cases like okay you've got uh, a pressure plate all the way in the corner and then it only needs two static spikes oh, that's true. On, yeah. on two sides of it in order to block it in. Or it's like up against a block in the room, and that's providing a wall on one side. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but the, the gist of it is is that, you know, we can't guarantee that that won't happen. And with heuristics, like, we can't necessarily, uh, you know, guarantee that it won't happen, but it's a lot less likely because the algorithm will actually try not to. Good stuff. Yeah, that's all fun stuff. So anyways, the upside is I've been doing a lot of dungeon room placement work uh, nice. on the new version of the game. That's uh, that's good stuff because, you know, that has the potential to make every single playthrough that a player does better. Yeah. And a it's lot like of it far just kind of come from my own frustrations about playing. You know, I kind of walk into a room and I'm like, ugh, God, I hate it when these turrets are right next to each other. They just look, yeah. they look dumb and they feel bad. Yeah. Another thing that I found feels really bad that I think is pretty easy to uh, to account for in heuristics is like I don't like it when things are on the midlines hmm. because it happens a lot that like you know I'll come into a room and there'll be a knife right in front of me and it'll be like and attack me. Yeah. Right. Because I because I come in on that midline and so I think when I redo that I'm gonna do focus on two things. One is that enemies and traps don't want to be next to each other so like they try and spread out if they can yeah uh, and then the second thing is they try not to be on the midlines if they can right yeah it's basically like a jerk move you know if a designer did that intentionally jerk move. Yeah. You, you walk through a door and a spike traps right there in your face like don't do that <laughs> i think we, the other thing we did was we uh just took certain entities out of like, kind of the random placement pool altogether and yeah. uh the the wall spikes are a good example of that. So these are like spikes that kind of move like Legend of Zelda. You know, they when they detect you, they move up on the orthogonal axis or, or left and right. Yeah. And they retreat back to their starting location. And in ADB1, we had those, but they were just <laughs> haphazardly placed like in the middle of the room, and I felt <laughs> terrible. And uh, yeah, so I think we made the decision in this game that traps like that really should just be in a... Like, there should be a room that's, hey, I have four spikes in the corner and then some random monsters in the middle 
and that room shows up, you know, every so often, but you don't really ever get those kinds of spike traps just randomly thrown at you in the world. I feel like one of the ways that we got there was we added these kitchen tables, which we wanted to feel big and fun to destroy and also big enough to support a giant like pig body. But we had these big tables and you can't just place them, right? You can't just say they're part of the objects or hazards pool because they're bigger than one tile and that code is only built to support one tile at a time. Right. And so like, if you just like, I actually tried it. I put the tables in that pool and they would put them up against a wall and there would be this clipping where it's like the wall's trying to push it out of bounds. So it's not working. So it would just look awful. Right. Like, you know, they, they were just bunched up against each other in a way that a designer wouldn't place by hand, you know? And so we were like, you know, I guess we need specific rooms to place those tables like manually almost in the code, or at least, you know, like with controlled procedural generation. Right. And that kind of put us on this path where we got to like, let's just make like a big um, kitchen banquet, you know, with like a, like a feast, like a free for all, you know? And then uh, that also got us thinking along the lines of like, maybe there should be a little bit more hand curated stuff in here and the landmarks. Like, I don't know. Those all kind of came together really well, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, It also just kind of came from the fact that some of the rooms we made in AWL1 were rooms that the random generator could have made for us. You know, like if you think about things like, oh, here's a zombie room. It's got zombies and graves. And like they're kind of (laughs) haphazardly placed. And it's like, that's fine. I mean, that that room is kind of interesting. But just through, you know, if you were to tell the algorithm like, hey, every time you have a room, choose a monster and choose a trap randomly, you're going to end up with the zombie room sometimes. Yeah, it's like not that interesting. Right. Needs needs more humanity in there. (laughs) Get some personality in there, right? Yeah, personality, I think, is a big thing for me lately trying to make the game feel like it has an opinion and a style and stuff like that intent intent yeah yeah that's something i've been reading a lot about recently is like you know people want things to look and feel intentional it's it's the accidental property that that doesn't sit well with people you know and honestly that's what the randomization feels like it just feels like you just threw things and mixed it up and let the pieces fall where or lay where they fall or whatever yeah like did you intend to put did you intend to put these oven turrets right next to each other? Because you realize they're destroying each other, right? <laughs> and you're like, no. No. No, we didn't. It's possible to do that stuff with big objects, too, like the tables you were talking about. But it complicates the algorithm by a whole lot because then you have to look at the size of the thing and see how many tiles it's going to affect and then look at all the other things in those tiles and make sure they're not walls. Yeah. And like then you have to nudge it. Like, oh, can I put it here? Can I put it here? What about it one more to the, you know, y-axis or x-axis or whatever? That, yeah. Like, that might be a lesson that came from Unity, you know, because something that we've been wanting to do while making the sequel is, like, what does Jin just do, right? Like, what what does the Crypt Run code base just do for us? Like, that was one of your uh, your tips about Unity was do it the Unity way, you know? And, like, yeah, just about anything is possible with code. Like, we could definitely make some heuristics that allow us for large objects to be placed but like the code for single tile objects works now and it works great you know so it's like what's the gin way of doing it and it's like this way like it nudges you in a direction and it's good because like even if it's not the best way it is definitely the more effective way like you can move faster and it's less buggy right like it's kind of a win across the board right and there's also ways to kind of split the difference uh between the curated and the random rooms um with things like that because you know we have like we talked about this banquet room that's almost a one-off like you only ever want to see it once and it's got a yeah. very specific layout of tables and stuff but then there's another room which i just call the kitchen table room and it's a small room and it always has a random kitchen table in the middle 
but then it's populated by random monsters, random traps. So nice. you might see this room with a single kitchen table in it a couple different times, but every time you see it, hopefully, there's going to be a different combination of monster and trap. Could yeah. be like pig heads and webs, or ice traps and slimes, or whatever. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually added the um, the kind of like room announcement text to the kitchen banquet too, right? I did, yeah. I was playing yeah. around with, you know, just adding a little bit more personality to the stuff, like telling you that you're in a place that's special. Yeah. That's nice, like, because otherwise you might not know. You know, like a movie will cut. You're in a city, and it cuts to another city, and you're like, I don't know, I'm a different part of the same city. Like, that's easily possible. And it'll say, you know, like Boston or something. Right. Like, throw us a bone here. You know, like let us know when, <laughs> right? Because like, it's hard for for the player or the viewer or whatever. Like, you you don't necessarily you can't read the creators' minds. You know, you need to be thrown a bone. Right. Let me know what's up. And it's kind of cool because then, like, you know, you remember next time you come back, you're like, Kitchen Banquet, oh, I know what this is all about. Yeah. Um, but even the Kitchen Banquet has some randomness to it. You know, it's got this specific layout of tables and, and such, but the monsters inside tend to be different. Right. Um, so even on repeated playthroughs, hopefully that will still feel interesting. I like the Kitchen Banquet a lot. It does feel like a feast. Feast of combat. <laughs> feast of combat, yes. Twin stick shooter action. <laughs> it's good. It's great, too, because it's kind of like got that movie thing going on where, like, you're in this big hall and you're fighting off all these monsters in this big epic space and it looks cool and, like, tables are blowing up and there's lots of chaos and destruction. Yeah, and because we did that, uh, like, a true roguelike feel where it's like, you know, every entity's on the same page... So, like, when a pig shoots an apple at you, it can hit a table. And that could have repercussions because, you know, you might have hit that table once an accident. Pig hits it. That table's now dead. And another pig head pops out of that table because it was a pig table. Right. So, you get, like, this uh, <laughs> almost like dominoes falling down. Like, you walk over into a corner of the kitchen banquet and, like, boom, 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 boom. And stuff just starts blowing up. Oven turrets are attacking tables. Like, the whole left corner is decimated and there's, there's more monsters to deal with now. Right. <laughs> It's kind of fun. It, it feels is, very lively. It does, and uh, it's something we didn't do in AWL one. And I think that we were afraid that it was going to cause too much, uh, like, like chaos, right? Well, not not necessarily chaos. But I think my big fear was that it wasn't going to test the player well enough. Hmm. That it'd be really easy to just let the enemies kill themselves. <laughs> Boy, do we test the player enough? I'll say that. Yes, we do. Yes. If you you play the first game, you get tested. <laughs> like you, you'll probably die a lot, and you probably won't beat it. It's it's like that's something else that we've got with this with this other game is we're like we're we're not afraid of making the player o- overpowered, yeah. right? Because it's like oh you're overpowered, too bad. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> like that that's kind of our new thinking is like great you're overpowered. Like it's not going to last forever. We've been working on you know like there's like temporary buffs and whatnot and also everything's tied to a mana resource so like if you if you're op great have fun with that and also like being op can kind of you know go to your head and you could just waste mana yeah you act foolhardy yeah like you're riskier and like even though you're op you still end up dying like totally that's 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 great stuff actually yeah then you're kicking yourself like oh why i got greedy (laughs) that has me in spelunky so often (laughs) where i'm like you know I've got like 30 bombs, I've got 10 rope, I've got the shoes, the compass, you know, all the stuff that you would want to have, the glue. Yeah. And then you just get greedy and you fall on spikes and everything is for naught. You're never safe in that game. No. (laughs) That's kind of how we want uh, this game to feel. 
Although it'll be, it definitely won't be as... Uh, as deadly, probably. It won't be as deadly as Spelunky. No, it's going to be a much safer game. And we still, like, I don't know, we're throwing ourselves a hard design problem because we do want to have it where, like, you know, it's pretty accessible. You know, even people who aren't hardcore twin-stick shooter players can probably beat it if they spend just a little bit of time with it, right? But it's the fact that there's going to be all these advanced challenges and optional content and, like, organic we increased difficulty throughout levels that hopefully, uh, you know, advanced players will find really challenging. Right. Really, That's a hard problem if we're being honest with ourselves, you know, is. it is a hard problem. Catering, catering to accessible audience as well as a hardcore audience. But, uh, I feel good about it. I think we just need to basically bring the, the average difficulty of the game down a little bit because we had stuff in the game that was already uber difficult. Yeah. Right, like get this key, be dead, get this chest, go here, get this <laughs> item, get this thing. You know, like we had all this stuff that made it really difficult and there's achievements for like, you know, don't die. You know, so I feel like <laughs> there there's hardcore challenges for people that want hardcore challenges, but yeah. there wasn't anything for people that were like, I just like the lizard and I want to play and I just, I die in the first level all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it's just too brutal. It's not very welcoming. I think your game's cute, and I think it's fun to be in that little world, and the particles are good. Like, can I hang out too? No. <laughs> you die now. You die so much. Sword to the face. <laughs> <laughs> you must learn every system, all the content. It's a bit much. It is a bit much. Yeah. Anyways, I think we have a better philosophy now for pushing forward on that kind of stuff. One thing yeah. we're doing is we're not designing the first level first. Yeah, that's that's uh, great. That was something. I'll see. I'll put a link in the show notes if I can find that. That uh, advice that came from Miyamoto a long time ago, but was pretty much like um, design your first level last. I think it was an article or something. Um, but like that was one of those things we kind of like. Oh, you read it? Okay, great. And you bury it deep, you know. And like when you're thinking about your content, it's uh, it's really natural to think about your first level, you know. And we were like, is the kitchen the first level? And something about that didn't quite fit right. You know, and then also when we were preparing for the um, the demo on December 10th as part of Indie Cup, we were like, we need to have something that's very baked, you know, like a lot of content there, um, but it's like, it's not really going to be the first level, you know, it needs to be more like, it kind of moves past that because the first level is going to be this place where we do lots of kind of onboarding and tutorializing and it's like you kind of ramp up slowly, but like for the demo, we really want to see how our content's doing. We almost want to like, you know, push people into the deep end and see how they do, see how the game does. Like, get a, get a full spread of that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think what we'll end up doing for the demo, too, is taking, like, the first level of the kitchen and, and nerfing it so that it's, you know, very easy. Yeah. And maybe taking out a couple of the different monsters or something that are they're harder than the rest. And yeah. then, you know, saving those for the later levels. So I pretty much want anyone who sits down to play the game to be able to get through the first level without much of a problem yeah you you know what the game wants from you you know how to do it and you find that compelling <laughs> that's what we want yeah and i think that kind of helps with like the frustration aspect you know like if you can make some progress and you understand what your goal is you know without getting slapped down right away yeah that uh you might be more inclined to try again when you fail you know you're like hey i made it past level one like i get it okay you go from a to b and you kill monsters that are in your way and you pick up treasure and like that's good and then you're on level two and you're like, oh man, this is much harder. Yeah. But I almost feel like uh, there was this dumb game I used to play like in grade school. Where you'd be like, guess what number I'm thinking of between one and 100? 17. No. 
that's the end of the game <laughs> it's like it's brutal you know it's like it's more fun if you if you keep playing and you get hints and you have like you have support you know but when it's like just boolean yes or no and like that's it you lose you're dumb it's like it's harsh it is you know it's like throw me a bone here like give me some clues like push me like nudge me in the right direction and whatnot yeah help the player out i was uh thinking about splunky the other day and how there are so many ways that you can just get one shot oh yeah like you can get one shot by a bomb you can get one shot by spikes you can get one shot by a tiki trap you can get one shot by a man-eating plant and some of those scale yeah. right like the tiki traps you know they only one shot you if you have four lives or less but i mean that's what you start with so right if you weren't able to get any more lives then it's effectively getting one shot yeah it's kind of more, more interesting that it's not a one shot but it sent like for all intents and purposes it pretty much is right it is a little more interesting um and, and i think bombs are actually the same way i think you can actually can you take a bomb if you have a lot of life or no i don't think so oh, you're wrong anyways but, there's a, a number know. of things like that in the game where they do a bunch of damage but they won't necessarily kill you yeah and then there are things that will like always kill you always like, like spikes is just a it looks like it just sets your your property to dead <laughs> like you could have all the life in the world and it's like no you are dead now you're dead and the man plant stuff like that yeah i don't know i i have mixed feelings about those things like on one hand they feel very dangerous and epic but on the other hand uh it kind of feels not great yeah you know too punishing yeah well it's like you made a mistake like great that happens but that mistake is like the worst like those uh there's that one room in spelunky where like there's the vines over the spike pit oh and you gotta hop from vine to vine and like yeah <laughs> there are so many times where i've died in that room oh yeah like you miss a jump and you're like no now your game's over yeah when i was first playing the game i would I, I came to fear those rooms basically and i would get to them and i would not take them on i would be like i'm gonna bomb them or i'm gonna go around and that's just about all I'm going to do. Right. I almost, you know, I was playing cautiously, so I almost always had the resources to do it. That's what Melissa But then later does. on, yeah, that's the careful, cautious way, right? But then later on, you get more confidence. And these days, I'm like, no big deal. Yeah. I, I know, like, the controls well enough. Like, you you have to be on that up, uh, you know, key or analog stick or whatever. You need to be pressing up right. <laughs> big time because that's how you grab on. Because that was, like, the number one reason I would die. I guess I got, you know, hit by a bat or like those monkeys or whatever but like the number one reason would be i would jump and just completely miss the vines and just splat <laughs> but it was because yeah i wasn't like i wasn't hitting the up well enough right a hard up a hard up <laughs> no soft ups <laughs> anyway what a great game yes anyways moving on um you art tip yeah yeah art tip. here we go again um lying for two weeks in a row um i think I it's been a about couple more 145 <laughs> weeks in a row <laughs> Is that what it feels like? <laughs> That's what it feels like. Okay, so uh, I was drawing Mega Man uh, last week, I guess. Mega for Man, Mega Man. Mega Man. Yeah, for uh, <laughs> Draw Mega Man Day 2015. Wait, there's and, a Draw Mega uh, Man Day? There is. Well, then, you learn something new every day. I told you about it last week. Nah, I don't pay attention to you. Proof that you don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> Documented. Um, so I, I drew Mega Man and I posted it like you're supposed to do and draw Mega Man Day. And then later I was looking at it and it was really bugging me because, um, I feel like it was close to being decent, but it was kind of crappy. So I was, you know, I just analyzed it. I flipped it around, I knocked it around, you know, I looked at it, kicked the tires, stuff like that. And I saw, um, what I think is a repeating pattern in my stuff. <clears throat> so I call it the, the squeeze or the pinch. Um, but basically what it is, is like 
when you have something here, here was a specific example. There's these kind of side, like almost look like headphones on the side of Mega Man's helmet. Okay. And just the <clears throat> angle I was drawing him in, it was kind of hidden between his like behind his shoulder, I think, or his arm as it was going up. Anyway, there was not full enough room to render his entire like headphone cup on the side of his head. Right. And I do this all the time. I, I you know, as I look at my drawings, I, I squeeze it in. You know, and it's like there's not enough room for where I want to put it. And when you're drawing something, it's it can be really hard to draw just like a quarter of it or just like a snapshot of it. You know, like it's you want to draw an ear. You can draw a whole ear. But what if I tell you just to draw the bottom half of an ear? That's harder, right? Because you, you want to draw the whole ear and then like, the, like, like just use the second half. Like if you're just drawing the bottom of an ear, that's like, what does that even look like? You have to think harder about it, you know, like your mind has a better mental model for a complete year than part of it is what I'm trying to say. Right. Right. And so what I did is I squeezed in this, uh, this ear cup and it looked bad. It looked squeezed in, it looked squished. Um, this point is along the same lines as like anybody who studies art's probably heard of this where you want to draw through. And so what that means is like, um, let's say you want to like, you know, you drive a hand holding a spear, right? And you, so you want to draw the straight line for the spear, and what you want to do is you want to draw that right through the hand because that's how you get this nice fluid solid line, right? And it doesn't look like the spear enters the hand from the bottom and then exit the hand from the top in a totally different angle or a different position. That looks horrible, right? Yeah. Right? Like we've all seen that on bad drawings. And the solution is to draw through, right? And it's kind of the same idea, but it's um it's a little bit different because like I noticed I was drawing through because the lines I drew for my squeezed head cup thing was headphone cup thing was uh they were drawn through but they were still pinched and the object itself was squeezed in hmm. does that make sense yes so what i did was like there's a couple different ways you can go about it and i was working digitally so it's very easy what i can do is i could take Meg- the rest of the Mega Man's lines and i took the opacity down to you know very faint and then i kind of drew the head cup thingy <laughs> in isolation and then it looked fine and i put it there and it worked much better you know, like, I don't think I got the perspective quite right, but it was definitely uh, not as squeezed and squishy and, and bad looking if you, you know, focused on it. And then you bring back the Mega Man lines, you erase away what you don't need, and then you end up with a better result. Yeah. I'm actually looking at your GIF of the polished Mega Man thing. Oh, cool. It's kind of cool because you can see the before and after. Yeah. Man, Twitter does not like GIFs, but... Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, the GIF that I have is much more fluid. It's like, whoop, whoop, whoop. Whoop, it just show, but you know, Twitter is like, oh, it's jug between frames. <laughs> but yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes if uh, if you're interested um, to see it. And like, uh, I think that it's a good example of you know that last ten percent. You know, in a game, we talk about how hard that is, and like the last ten percent for that drawing to me was just as hard as the drawing the whole thing. Mm, <laughs> you know, because I was like, the reason that the lines and the areas that I didn't nail it, the reason they weren't as good is because it just wasn't coming out of me. You know, and I was overwhelmed with like everything else I had to do. So I'm like, okay, screw it. The foot doesn't look perfect. I don't care. I'm moving on, you know? Right. But then like later, after I recharged and took a fresh look at it, I had more energy, you know? And I was like, I kind of want to add, you know, some more highlights and smooth out these lines and, you know, rethink the helmets and stuff like that. Nice. Right, so I think it ended up pretty well. That's uh, that's good. Thanks. Yeah. Just, uh, just for practice, just for fun. And I, I really like stuff like, um, you know, draw Mega Man Day. It's still Halloween. I don't really know what exactly that one is, but it's also still Inktober. You can draw stuff in ink and post it on the various social medias. That's still going on. It's uh, it's fun stuff. I like anything that, you know, gets those creative juices flowing, you know? Where's 
game engine optimization over. <laughs> <laughs> you start it. That sounds like a lot of work, Matt. Yeah, it does. It's, it'll be Septengine. Septengine. <laughs> Did you like that one? Yes. That sounds great, except for we'll have to wait a whole nother year. No, ve- no vengeance. No vengeance. Yeah, you should make no vengeance. That's what you should do. Uh, maybe I will. And then yeah, we'll I'll... be even more behind. <laughs> <laughs> so you were just going to talk about design patterns. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we got for this week. No, actually I am. <laughs> uh, so in our ongoing talk about design patterns, uh, this week we're going to talk about the singleton pattern which is probably one of the most used and abused design patterns <laughs> ever. And misunderstood? Uh, maybe. Maybe. It's interesting because uh, when you talk about a lot of design patterns, I think they get a little like high level, you know, and a lot of people may not necessarily like know them by that name um, yeah. or, you know, have worked in a situation where that was... Yeah, they're just a little more complicated. The singleton pattern is pretty simple. You know, it's like you take a class and you have a single instance of it ever across your across your project, and it has some interesting interesting benefits, right? Like the benefits are that it has a shared state, so that you know you have you know let's say you have a singleton A, and then you have two classes B and C that each need to access that singleton, uh, but they want the data to be shared, right? Yeah. Or they want to access class A, rather. And they want the data to be shared between them. They don't want to have their own copy of class A. And so that's where singleton comes in handy, is that, you know, class B says, you know, I get a reference to the singleton A, and uh, I can modify it and call its methods or whatever. And then all of those changes are reflected in class C. And that's pretty powerful, because, you know, it allows you to uh, more easily centralize things like maybe game state, for example, um, game state could be a singleton, um, things like that. Things that you kind of want to be global to your to your game, but yeah. not necessarily, and not have to like pass them around. Yeah, that's the big thing. It, it you know you don't have to do all that passing. Like you have that extra parameter in each one of your functions, or you just you know, I'm just gonna throw it on globals and see if anybody <laughs> notices. Right. Like I know it's wrong, but it's easy. The interesting thing about a singleton though is that it ends up being a global variable anyway. Kind of. It has a lot of the downsides of a global variable. Right. In that it is shared state. You know, it's like you can't then have this one, oh, I want to have like a different instance of, of the game state somewhere else for some reason. Yeah. And then it doesn't work as well in that context. Um, the other thing I, I kind of don't like about it is that it, uh, it's a really gross pattern like to write <laughs> in terms of code. You know, because you end up uh, with these really weird initialize uh, initialize functions like, you know, if instance is null, then create an instance and return it. Otherwise, just return the existing instance. I yeah. think it's a really it's really gross when it's implemented in a classical inheritance system. Like singletons in classical inheritance languages make me like want to just delete my computer. <laughs> They're, they're so ugly. <laughs> RM minus RF. That's right. Delete everything I've done. Burn it to the ground. <laughs> I actually like them a lot better in JavaScript. Because you can actually get, you know, 
uh, it's a little more elegant, right? You maybe if you're using like we are like require JS or say Browserify or something, and you're using the common JS module pattern, you can just have you know var statements outside of your exports, and that's basically a single thing with state. You know, you just say, you know, here's my collection of functions, you know, exports dot function equals blah, exports dot function two is equal to blah. And then you just have, you know, a var statement at the top of that file that just is basically ends up being in a, in a function scope with the rest of those functions. Yeah. And uh, it makes it easy for that state to get accessed. What is in our code base that's a singleton that you like a lot? Uh, probably game state, like game data. Things yeah. like how much time has passed in the game world uh, because a lot of different systems need to know that. And the way that the code is architected, it's not, you know, there's not like just one timer going somewhere. You know, there, there's multiple rooms and each room needs to know. And then the dungeon at large needs to know. And then sometimes entities need to know. Um, so stuff like that, like anything you like you want to track the number of kills the player has, has had in that session or which quests they've seen so far, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, another one is like the item, the itemizer, which is just mm. a singleton class that I use to distribute items throughout the game world. Right. And so from the perspective of the rest of the game, it just says, you know, itemizer, give me some items. And the itemizer has state and it knows like, okay, I already gave you this other item, so I'm not going to give you a duplicate. I'm going to try and give you a fresh new item that you haven't seen yet. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of abstracts away a lot of that stuff into a place where um, the calling code doesn't have to care. It can just say, I'm going to make a chest. I'm going to put something inside the chest and I don't necessarily have to care what's inside of it. Yeah. That's the that's job nice. of some other game system. And then it makes it really easy to create content that way, right? Because I can create five different rooms that all say like, yeah, there's a chest in this room, a chest in this room, and a chest in this room, and there's five chests in this other room. And they'll all be pretty dumb and just fill their chests with, you know, items that the itemizer tells them that it needs to fill it with. I feel like this is a lesson along the same lines as um, isolating your complexity, distributing your complexity, like we talked about in a Lost Cast episode called Complex City. <laughs> where it's like uh yeah, i know the pun the lost cast puns are, are, are real <laughs> but it's basically like if you need complexity at least spread it out so that the one thing you're working on isn't crazily complex because you know if you were like i want to place a chest and crap i need to worry about the items so let's look at the items and make sure the, the item hasn't been placed and the items 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 instead you can say i don't care the itemizer worries about it right spread that complexity out um, that's actually one of the reasons i did that big refactor i was talking about earlier on the show about the room generation and the room placement originally i had this code where it was just like this big function that would take a generated dungeon and then you know loop over it and put rooms in place and it was this big yeah. gross function that was like doing everything and so the first thing i did is i just split that out to separation of concerns so now i have a very specific file called room chooser and the only thing the room chooser does is just decide which rooms are going to be in the dungeon at all it doesn't care where they're going to go. doesn't care anything about that. Just which rooms do I need? And then there's a whole separate file called the room placer. And the room placer, all its job is to take some rooms. doesn't care which rooms they are, how they got there, how they got chosen. It just takes those rooms and figures out where in the dungeon those rooms are going to be. And then that's it. 
And then the next piece, the next layer, it says, now that I have all these rooms in the right places, I'm going to go through and start populating them with monsters and whatnot. Nice. So anyways, yeah, like I'm a it. big fan of that separation of complexity. Yeah. It's very useful. Yes. Anyways, uh, so singleton design pattern. I think that one area where I would dislike it in our current game is uh, perhaps the dungeon. So we have this idea like the dungeon is a singleton and it has an instance, it has two instances of rooms, the active room and the inactive room. And so it can kind of like, it swaps those things around as the rooms kind of scroll. Yeah. And so that's kind of the way, it's really interesting actually that that piece of code because we essentially have two room simulations that exist for the sole purpose of facilitating the transition, the visual transition between rooms. Yeah. Because without that, you, you wouldn't really need it. Right. Um, but that was like the easiest way to kind of get that to work was just to have two rooms that get drawn side by side. Um, but I mean, I guess that's the, uh, you know, that's the upside of not using singleton in that particular case with the rooms, right? Is that you can do stuff like that. You know, you can have these isolated rooms that, uh, exist on their own they have their own tick they have their own drawing everything and they can be put side by side and uh and viewed that way whereas if the dungeon room if i had designed that as a singleton that would have been a lot more difficult nigh impossible yeah um although i could do something like snapshot the room like take a freeze frame of it and then just use that as like a static graphic to scroll alongside or something which you know if i was designing today that's probably the way i would do it right but Anyways, um, I think that in general with singletons, I try and stay away from singletons in general because uh, it's kind of like, it's kind of a tight coupling in a way. You know, you have this Mm. very specific thing that is one instance of something and it makes it harder to reuse it, I think. Yeah. Um, I've seen some cases where like in a classical inheritance structure, it'll be like there is a thing that you can make, say it's a, you know, game state, right? You can create a new game state if you need it and you can do that. And the singleton, the code is just a little bit of boilerplate where it's like it takes it, creates an instance and returns it and that's it. It's kind of the best of both worlds because you've got your shareable singleton if you need it. But if you want to have access to that same data, but a different instance of it, you can just create a new whatever. Right. I don't know. Pros and cons, right? Right, yeah. It's hard. I've never... I'm trying to think of a time when I've ever wanted to do that, to have a singleton and an instance. Maybe for like a sim or something. You just want to simulate something or fake some data. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, it's a... Uh, I would say it's a use with caution kind of design pattern. Yeah. Because it's really easy to use, but you can also kind of lock yourself into a corner. Um without being able to create, you know, multiple instances or something. It feels like an optimization step sometimes. So it might be that, like, you don't need a singleton yet, right? So just, like, maybe hold off on it until you're sure that you need it. Maybe, yeah. It's hard because, you know, the uh, the alternative sometimes is to be passing a lot of data around, which is also not that great. Well, I feel like it's the same kind of thing. You know, like, you'll, you'll be writing some code and you realize that you're you're repeating your code. Right, and that's when you'd want to consolidate, make it a function, you know, place the data on an object or something. And there's along those same lines with uh, with your singleton, where you'll be like, I realize that I'm passing this parameter to two and now three different functions. 
So that would be a time to revisit that. It's like maybe it's scoped here or maybe it's a singleton I can share from other places or whatever. But it, I guess it does to me feel like an optimization step in one way or another. Right. Like you might not want to start with a singleton unless you can see like, you know, three steps later for what you'll be doing or whatnot. Thanks for listening. We always appreciate it. Uh, join us on the forum at forum.lostigatgames.com. We're going to play you out with Funk Bump by Joshua Morse. Ship it.
that is a lot easier because I just line up that one thing and That's it's good. like, it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that your life is easier. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't Julie, do anything for you. Nothing that makes me more happy in the world than your life being easier. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>